0: Good morning everyone. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Uh, This is going to be continuing a yearly series that we're doing here, looking at uh, basically a chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians once per month. Uh, Every year I try to have something as like a monthly preaching theme, and usually it seems most helpful to cover a book of the Bible that maybe we don't usually study that would be helpful and has points that would be very helpful, uh, or a section of scripture that would really benefit the, the church here to go through. And Second Corinthians is, is my favorite book of the Bible. Um, it's, it's really, in so many ways, I think, shaped who I am and has so many lessons about love in the book. When Paul and Victoria Kelsey first started coming here, I think I was teaching on 1 Corinthians 13. When they first started visiting and what I did when I was teaching 1 Corinthians 13 is I would actually just illustrate the points that are made in 1 Corinthians 13 with things that Paul does in 2 Corinthians because his approach to love is uh, so clear and so Christ-like. And with that, we've talked about uh, Luke chapter 6 recently as well, the past three weeks, uh, specifically Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6. And everything we see in 2 Corinthians as well and in this chapter, again, just gives some reality in terms of Paul applying the things that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. And 2 Corinthians as well, it highlights Paul's example in ways that are much more clear than any other book of the Bible. Uh, I would say that 2 Corinthians even highlights Paul's example more than the book of Acts, where we see him going from city to city preaching and teaching. There's just a lot of things that cannot be conveyed as easily through instruction alone. There are some things where just conveying it through instruction is going to be much more difficult, or the power of what you're saying is not going to be there if you don't have an example. Uh, God frequently teaches through examples. And Jesus himself, although we studied his sermon in Luke chapter 6, that sermon would lose its power if Jesus' example didn't highlight every one of the things that is said, if that didn't connect to the living proof of that teaching in his example. And so looking at Paul's example in 2 Corinthians, I think really equips us to grow in ways that are difficult uh, and more nuanced than just instruction alone. So we're going to be looking at the appeal of love in uh, Paul's appeal to the Corinthians. But I wanted to kind of think what happened. So even from the scripture reading, from what Jason read in the end of chapter 1, into chapter 2, verse 11, something clearly happened that Paul is talking about. And I do think there's a need to put together things a little bit. And so this first part of the lesson is going to be kind of dense with just some dumping of information, uh, but just kind of put it in a box as kind of setting up some context. uh, And then we'll get into the, the chapter a bit more after setting up the context. So back in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul wrote the first letter that we have, He acknowledges in the first part of the letter that there were some people who were arrogant. That has persisted in the church in 2 Corinthians. Paul acknowledges that the further you get in the letter. But he mentions their arrogance as if he wasn't coming. He says, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of the arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. So he was planning on coming to them soon, and he was worried that visit may not be good. Well, in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, rather, chapter 1, this is 2 Corinthians now, chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he mentions that he had anticipated actually making two visits. So verse 15, he wanted to visit them twice. Verse 16, that is to pass your way into Macedonia, and again from Macedonia to come to you, To be helped by you on my journey to Judea. So he planned on two visits, and it seems like he had communicated that with the Corinthians and seemingly disappointed them by only showing up once. Uh, But the first visit did not go well. (laughs) So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you again in sorrow. So something happened on this first visit where it did not go well. Uh, I, I think about this as the painful visit or the sorrowful visit. And this is after 1 Corinthians had been sent to the church. And it seems heavily implied from what's said here in chapter 2, but also later in chapter 7, it may be related to what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 5. He never outright says that explicitly. But in chapter 2, there is a brother who's been disassociated with, who has repented and returned back to the church. So if it's not the situation from 1 Corinthians 5 with the man who had his father's wife, and the church needed to take action against that. If it's not that, it's something similar. But it seems like this painful visit involved some personal things as well, where Paul may have been personally opposed on his visit to Corinth. Uh, Again, it just seems like that visit did not go well. So then in chapter two, verses three and four, he mentions a letter he wrote with many tears and anguish of hearts. He mentions this in chapter seven again. So I call this his severe letter. So after 2 Corinthians, or after, let me get this straight, after 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a visit. That visit does not go well. He planned to make another visit. He decided not to. He changed his plans because, again, the condition of the church was not good. They had not repented. So he writes a severe letter. I kind of consider this a more direct letter, really boldly addressing the problems and making a desperate appeal to the church. He sent this with Titus. Chapter 2, 13 and 14, he'll mention he looked for Titus to find out how the church was doing, couldn't find him, and then he went to another location in Troas to find Titus. And he eventually does find Titus. And the report that Titus brings is that the church did repent. They had done the right thing. They had responded to his letter very well. And so Titus actually brought Paul good news. Um, So he'll address that in chapter 2. He'll address that in chapter 7. And he's more specific in chapter 7 that he did find Titus. Titus had much joy, brings Paul joy, reports about their zeal, their repentance, their good attitude. So that's what's happened, all right? That leads us into Paul addressing kind of some behind-the-scenes thing with this severe letter that he had written. So I want to start back in verse 23 again of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 23, and I'll read through chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll start getting into the letter itself, or 2 Corinthians, and some points to be made from how Paul approaches the situation now. Chapter one, verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but but our workers with you for your joy. For in your faith, you are standing firm. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you again in sorrow. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? And this is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you may know the love which I have abundantly for you. So we'll address this um, in a few minutes, but it seems like there were people in Corinth who are using a lot of decisions Paul had made to slander him uh, to the church. And so there's a need in this letter for Paul to kind of open up his heart and help the church see what his intentions were behind the scenes. I think that's the main reason why he spent so much time explaining what his real intention was, how this really affected him. So in chapter 2, everything that Paul is doing, is ultimately for the good of the church at Corinth. That even writing the severe letter, which did cause them sorrow, it's not that Paul wanted to be severe. It's not that he took any joy in causing them sorrow. But in fact, the goal rather was to restore joy and bring their fellowship back into a place of true, real, mutual joy in their fellowship with the Lord. So he mentioned in chapter 2, verse 1, I determined this for my own sake. You know, so Paul, it's easy to take for granted. Paul's not a robot. Just like it's easy to take for granted, God is not a robot. And I think as we see Paul's intentions in this letter and his emotions, it's, it's a window into the emotions that Jesus had also in his life. You know, Jesus said a lot of hard things. Jesus said a lot of hard corrective things. Some severe things, you might say. Did Jesus enjoy that? <laughs> Was he just calloused? To the difficulty that would bring and maybe the conviction, maybe the guilt, you know, the process of sorrow that comes before repentance. No. You know, I think you see in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, you know, this really messed with Paul emotionally having to write this letter. You know, in verse 4, part of Paul's intention as well was through this difficult letter that they might actually know the love he has for them. And I don't think that's just in the fact that he's willing to write a difficult letter. But I think it's that if this letter is written and the church repents, the comfort that can come through that, the renewal of relationship that can come through that, will dramatically increase the love and grace in their relationship together. Which is what Paul is going to emphasize through this chapter. But again, Paul opening up his heart, he wrote this letter with anguish of heart. I imagine that as they read this letter, there would be literal teardrops they could see, dried teardrops on the letter. And he wrote this with firm hope and intent to restore joy. And I want you to notice that in verse 3. He mentions in the second half that uh, he was confident that his joy would be the joy of them all. And I want to emphasize that, that God's love gives us a hope with people that equips us to have needful and difficult conversations to give needful and difficult correction so Paul had confidence writing this severe letter were the corinthians a group that would naturally inspire confidence think about the condition they were in when the first letter was written first corinthians you know a man had his father's wife at that point already he knew the church was tolerating it he told them at that point they need to sorrow instead of tolerating this take care of the problem but man, 1 Corinthians 5 is just one problem among many others. The church was involved with prostitution. The church had problems with so much arrogance and all sorts of different uh, facets of their relationships together. You know, their worship was completely discombobulated because of that arrogance. Just so many problems at Corinth. And then he visits them after writing the letter. And had they taken care of the problem? No. The problems are still persisting. And not only that, again, it seems like Paul was directly opposed on his visit. And it was a painful visit. And yet he still says he wrote with confidence in them. And I think that's really important. This gets back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. If you were to think naturally about the Corinthians at this point, no reason for confidence in that church. They've proven they're not going to respond well. They've not been responding well. They don't want a relationship with Paul anymore. But only to think, it's so easy to focus on people in the wrong way, where we become so afraid of how someone will respond, or we think about their history, and we just end up closing our hearts too early, and uh, dismissing people too early. You know, God's love gives us a hope that equips needful, difficult conversations and correction. Because so when we focus on the Lord, you know, I think fundamentally we can think if someone is a Christian, if they've submitted to the gospel, if they've been baptized for the remission of their sins, they have repented before. <laughs> they've died to themselves before. They've let the Lord work in them before. They, they have that capability. But then also I think when we think about not only their history, but the power of God. You know, if something difficult is said that can get in someone's heart, can God work in that to produce change more than if something is not said and you just leave it be? You know, can God work beyond us? You know, God loves people. Can God work with people to crack the hardness of their hearts if we'll just extend ourselves and, again, say the hard things that need to be said? I think this gets back to a trust in God. So, again, when we love God, And we understand the nature of his love and his power. That gives us a hope where we're not so trapped in a prison of fear with, well, how will they respond? Or maybe they'll respond badly. Or, you know, they haven't really been taking things very well. And we just think more about God. (laughs) That, you know, they have a relationship with God more than they have a relationship with me. And that's got to get fixed. And God can work with broken things that are said more than if I don't say anything. And I think, again, that's the nature of Paul's confidence. And arrogance destroys our capacity to understand that or apply things. You know, it's pride, actually. When we're just focused on people's weaknesses and not on the Lord. When we're just exaggerating things with hypotheticals in our minds and we're having make-believe imaginary conversations about, well, if I say this, boy, they're going to attack me. If I try to correct them on this, they're going to get mad at me. You know, we just get trapped by these hypotheticals that haven't even happened. But I think like the Corinthians in chapter 10, some of the Corinthians, I think it can also be easy to villainize people who love us enough to say the hard stuff. Look at chapter 10 and just a few verses in chapter 10. Some things that Paul understands are happening at Corinth that he's willing to acknowledge. Look at chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. He addresses this more and more clearly as the letter goes on. So in chapter 10 verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself plead with you, by the gentleness and forbearance of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but courageous toward you in absent. But I beg that when I am present, I need not act so courageously with the confidence that I consider to daringly use against some who consider us as if we walked according to the flesh. Look at verse eight. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. Now, mind you, not for tearing you down. I think he's meaning this severe letter they had written to them, verse nine. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is weak and his words contemptible. You know, do you see what they are saying in those last verses? They're saying, you know, Paul's just trying to tear you down. You know, Paul's not loving you. You know, he's trying to rip you apart. You know, and Paul, you know, talks this big game in his letters, but then when you're face-to-face with him, he's this weepy guy who's not willing to follow up on his letters. You know, but Paul's trying to make the point, that is the forbearance of Christ. I am exhausting every option to work with you, and I'm suffering such concern to try to build you up and not destroy you. It's easy to misunderstand this approach. (laughs) You know, things do need to be dealt with gently and kindly, But there's a time where you just have to take some risks. And sin needs to be dealt with seriously. Especially if a person is not willing to change, and it's being pointed out and they're not listening, things might need to be said more clearly. There may need to be more weight given to the problem. And it's easy to villainize those who are willing to say those things. Fortunately, it's happened to me. Usually when we have to disfellowship from someone, usually that's what happens. (laughs) It's by the time we get to a point where they're just completely shut off. You know, in their minds, the villain is the person trying to deal seriously with the problem. And they'll find plenty of people who will pat them on the back and comfort them. And I think that's how these arrogant false teachers were at Corinth. Well, that leads us to the next section. With the good results that Paul is going to be emphasizing here. That they did respond repentantly. So verse 5, I'm going to read through verse 11 with Paul's appeal for reconciliation here. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, all of you. Just pause there for just a moment. What's happened has caused a lot of emotional turmoil. Turmoil with Paul, turmoil in the church. And again, if Paul's not to be villainized for trying to boldly confront them to deal with that problem, where does the blame go? The reality is sin creates awkward situations. Sin makes it necessary to have to deal with some really awkward, difficult things. Sin causes problems in relationships that become really delicate and almost become like a landmine field that you've got to traverse to deal with the problem. I think what Paul is trying to say is all of this emotion, all of this contention that's come from this, the blame for that isn't Paul. Again, he's saying, not to say too much. But the problem is the person who's been in sin, who's not been willing to deal with that. All right, verse six. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him, lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I encourage you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might know your proven character, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you graciously forgive anything, I graciously forgive also. For indeed, what I have graciously forgiven, if I have graciously forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. All right, so something we see in verse 6 is the Corinthians, when this letter is written, they have taken appropriate action against this sinning brother. And it seems like this is something that he wrote about in 1 Corinthians 5, where they are to disassociate from this person, uh, take the most extreme kind of measure as a local church. And they've done it. So he says, sufficient is this punishment. And just something worth noting in verse 6, does it seem like every single person in the church was on board? He says, sufficient is the punishment inflicted by the majority. You know, I think based on what we just saw in chapter 10, And some things Paul gets into even later in the letter is that there's still some people who are against Paul. They are not on board with Paul's teaching, Paul's involvement with the church. But you know what? Sufficient was the majority for taking proper action against this. So now that they've done this and this brother has repented, he's returned. Now they've got to change their approach. They urgently and diligently, they need to reaffirm their love for this person by forgiving forgiving and comforting this brother. What that means is they're going to have to start digging deep <laughs> because this can be challenging. You know, you can think it's letting them off the hook too easily. You know, I've got to keep my eye on this person. I've got to see if they're they're really serious about their repentance. They've got to prove themselves for a while before I can really, you know, take that risk, you know, and comfort them. You know, or maybe if I comfort them, maybe I'm rewarding their bad behavior. <laughs> You know, maybe, again, I'm letting them off the hook too easy, and I've got to continue to let them know that they really messed up bad. No, they've got to forgive and comfort this brother. And it demands digging deeper into Jesus' love. You know, what if I have hurt, residual hurt from the situation that's not resolved? You know, there's a worldly wisdom that, again, there's some balance to applying this. You know, someone has to earn my trust again. There's a balance where if trust has been broken, the reality is it will take time to rebuild that and it's going to take some work. But trust is rebuilt by applying grace, not by withholding it. If we think trust is built by withholding forgiveness or withholding comfort or keeping ourselves from applying these things, we don't understand trust that comes from the love of Christ. And we have to think, is this how Jesus operates? You know, to withhold forgiveness. No. No. You know, when we repent, when we're baptized initially, we are fully forgiven immediately. When we repent even in prayer, when we confess our sins to God, do we think that God is up there holding his arms and his chest, looking down on us like, well, prove yourself first. You know, let me see it for a while and then I'll kind of get back to it and I'll see if you're really sincere. No. You know, we have confidence from God's example that when he forgives us, he really forgives us. And that comfort is immediate. This is risky. But I think we get risk backwards. I think it's easy to think that it's too risky to reaffirm love when really Paul makes the point in verse 11, the real risk is not doing this. (laughs) You know, it can seem risky to extend myself and forgive this person and comfort them so diligently, so quickly, when they've messed up so badly. They've affected so many people negatively with their decision. But in verse 11, Paul says, If we don't do this, Satan is going to have more opportunity to cause damage. And we're not ignorant of that. It's more risky to withhold forgiveness. It's more risky to withhold comfort. So this can be challenging. I want to bring up two examples of this um, that might be helpful. The church I grew up in in Minnesota, there were a couple of people that would go forward a lot to confess sin. And in my youth, um, In my immaturity, I would roll my eyes when they would come forward and confess their sin. I remember uh, in my adulthood, my dad commented on that. And he said that person might be the strongest person spiritually in the entire local church because they're more aware of their weakness. They're more aware of their need of help. They're willing to humiliate themselves before the church and they're willing to put themselves in a vulnerable position more than anybody else. That blew my mind. (laughs) Love hopes and believes all things. We've got to be really careful about thinking in a natural-minded way about someone coming forward. You see someone come forward a lot, the natural way to think about it is, give me a break. (laughs) Here we go again. You know, going through the cycle. Instead of thinking, you know what, that person is doing something praiseworthy. And what they need Is not my eyes rolling, they need my steps moving to embrace them and help them. Another example is uh, a brother has mentioned many times where he's seen people write letters and be in tears coming forward before the church. And after a brother pours his heart out, everyone just sits there. (laughs) No one does anything, no one says everything, Uh, because sometimes what they've done is really serious. You know, they've done some really serious and hurtful things. We've got to deny ourselves. <laughs> you know, this is, again, not something that's easy. You know, Paul's not calling the Corinthian church to do what's easy or to do what's natural. He is calling them to dig deeper into the love of Christ. All right. One more application of this is with parenting. I'm not a parent. So this is from an older brother who talked about these things. He said, I don't believe we should distance ourselves from our children after we discipline them or keep downgrading them when they repent. Not that we take away discipline, but we don't banish them emotionally. We don't act like we don't want to be around them after the punishment has passed and they're sorry. When they're repentant, we do everything we can to affirm our love, reestablish our connection and attachment to them. We have to dig deep. You know, this isn't just about the church at Corinth and what they needed to do. You know, the degree of lessons of love in this can be applied not just as a church, but even beyond parenting. There's so many examples to consider. And then finally, love's true triumph in verse 12 through 17. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. So remember, Titus is the one who Paul originally sent with a severe letter, and he's coming back with a report of how they've received that letter. So, but saying farewell to them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. death. That would be those who are perishing. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And those would be those who are being saved. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God. But as from sincerity, but as from God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. All right, so 12 and 13, can be kind of confusing because Paul's going to deviate for three, four, five, six, seven, For about five chapters, Paul's going to deviate and come back to this. Uh, I'll make that connection in just a second. But he mentions he came to Troas. And what did he find there in Troas in verse 12? There was an open door for the gospel. How important do you think that was to Paul? Because when he says there's an open door, what does he mean? He means that there are souls in Troas who want to obey the gospel, who want to be taught, who want to have Bible studies. Could Paul walk through that open door? Verse 13, he could not because he had no rest for his spirit. Because Paul was so concerned about the Corinthians, he could not teach the gospel in Troas. He had to urgently figure out how did the Corinthians receive this? Again, I think Arrogant brethren at Corinth were slandering Paul, trying to convince the Corinthians Paul doesn't care about you. He writes these severe letters. He just trying to tear you down. Wow. And Paul in this letter has to go so far to open his heart. I care so much about you. I wrote that letter with tears and anguish and hope and confidence in you. And I had an opportunity to preach the gospel in Troas, and there were souls that wanted to learn, and I couldn't even do it because I had so much concern over what was going on. And verse 14, Paul is going to deviate because they've repented. And he is going to seize that opportunity to emphasize the real glory of the gospel. But before we get into that, look at chapter 7. I want to show you that he makes a clear textual deviation that he comes back to. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. So he ends saying he left Troas and went looking for Titus in Macedonia. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. He literally continues a sentence that he paused. Chapter seven, verse five. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the humbled comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, that I rejoiced even more. So chapter 2, 12 and 13 talks about how he just desperately needed to find Titus and he pauses (laughs) and he comes back and finishes that sentence in chapter 7. Why does he do that? Because the Corinthians' repentance gives him an opportunity to not only unify himself with them in principle, but to delve deep into the true power and purpose of the gospel in a way that is unifying. In a way that should help the Corinthians understand the nature of the humility and the love and the character of Jesus and just the purpose of the gospel. And this might sound strange, but I think this is something that Paul really tries to just really hit on consistently in 2 Corinthians. And we'll look at chapter 4 here, 7 through 12, as an example of this. But it's the idea that when we allow ourselves to be conquered by the gospel, That is the power of Jesus' love. And this gets to his statement, a bit of an unusual statement in chapter 2, verse 14. The New American Standard doesn't quite translate this clearly, but it's in the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the translation I'm using as well. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. In the culture here, the idea of a triumphal procession is the king has gone out to battle. And after he conquers the people that he went to battle against, he would bring back captives to his home city. And he would lead them in a procession, the the conquered captives, to kind of show the fruits of his victory. We are the fruits of Christ's victory. We are the captives who've been taken by the conquering triumph of Christ. And the idea is, in the kingdom of God, when we surrender, when we allow ourselves to be defeated by the gospel, That is the power of God. Look in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Again, their repentance and the principle at the seed, at the core of their repentance, I would argue is the same core principle of what Paul talks about in chapter 4, 7 through 12 about himself. Chapter 4, 7 through 12. But we have this treasure, that is the gospel, the spirit of God, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves, in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death works in us, but life in you. I think the literal idea is this, is that love is excruciating. (laughs) You know, Paul's really going to convey that in this letter. He's conveying that already about the Corinthians. That loving the Corinthians is excruciating for Paul. There's times where he can't even preach the gospel to people who who want to hear it because he's so consumed with concern about how they're doing. But is that a defeat? Is Paul defeated because his life has just such intense sorrow and grief and difficulty? Or is that the point? Is that a signal of the triumphant power of the gospel? Obeying Jesus feels like I'm being destroyed. Luke 6. To love my enemies is going to feel like I'm being defeated. To be slapped on my cheek and turn the other, it's going to feel like I'm being defeated. To give and hope and expect nothing in return, I am going to feel like I'm being destroyed and defeated. That's the point. The reality is, Jesus' love feels like dying. That's the point. That is the cross. The cross is a symbol where it looked like Jesus was defeated. It looks like he was being defeated. That was the victory, that was the triumph. What Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians is he is delving deeper into the real power and the real purpose of the gospel. And he mentions that this makes us a fragrance of Christ among those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The idea is when Paul is around people, in a sense, it's hard. But it's going to expose and enhance wherever you really stand with God. And I want you to think about how that was with Jesus. If you were around Jesus and you actually talked to him, what would that do to you? What was Jesus going to be concerned about? What would he want to talk to you about? You know, if you aren't really serious about wanting to be close with God, I think being around Jesus would be really annoying, really frustrating. Because he was going to challenge you. He was going to ask you hard questions. He was going to bring up things that you probably didn't want brought up. And that was going to expose, and it was going to enhance where you really stand. Same for the Apostle Paul. You know, why was it difficult for the Corinthians to love Paul, even though he spent a year and a half with them? He taught them the gospel. He's been investing in them more than anyone else. Because being around Paul could be difficult. Not that he doesn't love them, but that he's most concerned about their faith, and he's willing to say the hard things. He's willing to work in harder ways than maybe others might be willing to for their sake. And this is going to expose and enhance where they stand. And I want you to think, this is a good thing. <laughs> is that how it is with you? When you are around people, are you a fragrance of Christ? You know, when people are around you, does it kind of expose where they really stand with God? And again, I think a lot of times we don't, we don't want that. Because someone might dislike me or might get in trouble. <laughs> For being clearly associated with Jesus, saying things that need to be said. And what Paul says here in, in contrast to all of this is there are others, in contrast, who peddle the Word of God. <laughs> it's a really weird word that's only used here in the entire New Testament. To peddle something means that you are distorting it, you are trying to use and abuse it for personal benefit, personal gain. And I think the idea is if this doesn't, if this is not what we see the gospel really is, if this is not what we are striving towards, we may not understand the gospel. And I think Paul here is talking about teachers and teachers at Corinth who are peddling the word of God, who see the gospel as a career opportunity, a place of, or something to give financial benefit. You know, I want to be careful with bringing some of this up, but sometimes there are preachers who see preaching as a career opportunity, you know, as an easy way for financial benefit. And I'm saying this is a warning where this could turn into me or be me. You know, teaching the gospel is not a career opportunity. Teaching the gospel isn't a way of just being paid easy money. Teaching the gospel is meant to be really hard work. And it's meant to equip someone to love people and love the word of God more diligently. The gospel is not a tool for my popularity. You know, it's okay when people make podcasts, you know, biblical podcasts. But man we've got to be super careful about using the gospel as a tool for personal popularity or feeding into someone's popularity. You know, if Paul was not out to be popular and I think we only know Paul because of the letters written to the churches that God himself preserved, you know, again, I think Paul is not necessarily someone easy to be around, but it was because of his devotion to the truth. The gospel is not a tool for my popularity. It's not about increasing my social circle it's not so that with my business I can have a larger realm of influence and people who will buy products from me. Speaking the truth and living by the truth may make you less popular. It may actually close in your circle of friends. Uh, and back to the last point, it may make your financial situation more unstable. The gospel is not about making my life more comfortable. It's not just about self-improvement. The Bible is not a self-help book. Jesus' life was not a life of comfort. The cross is not a symbol. Of a comfortable life or way of living again not that it's bad for us to have comforts or be comfortable at times but the cross is a beacon of sacrifice when we are conquered by the king we demonstrate his power it's like what we talked about in luke chapter 6 blessed are the poor but woe to the rich blessed are those who hunger now but woe to those who are well fed Blessed are those who weep, but woe to those who laugh now. You know, again, Paul is just illustrating by example realities of what Jesus lived by and taught. And that's where I'll end the lesson. I hope that these things have been helpful. I hope that these things have been encouraging. And I hope that they've even been very convicting. This letter has so much power because we are seeing the heart of someone who is truly striving to take those principles of Christ's instruction and fully, with no bias, really completely apply them into his life. If there's anything that needs to be brought forward, uh, there'll be a time after I pray. I'll say a prayer here, but if there's any needs that need to be brought forward, please bring them forward when we stand and sing after this prayer. If you'll pray with me.